Thank you again for being with us and for being seated. My name's Craig Thompson. I don't think I introduced myself when I stood up earlier, but I'm the senior pastor here, and it is our privilege to have you gathered with us this Sunday morning. I hope that you all had a really good Thanksgiving um, and are eager for all that uh, this Christmas season has in store. I do want to reiterate, uh, by the way, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but I want to reiterate something that Adam mentioned, that we are beginning our season uh, for Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering is the mission offering that we take every year at Christmas that goes to support international missionaries through the International Mission Board. Um, I believe our our goal this year is $15,000, I think. I'd have to double check that. So um, it's probably a little low since we already have $6,500, so that's great. But um, our uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering, here's the thing that I want you to understand. If you give a gift to Lottie Moon Christmas offering, zero dollars stay here. Um, Zero dollars go to administrative costs. All of that money goes directly to missionaries serving on the international mission field. And so uh, we do hope and pray. So that goes to support for those of you that are with us this summer. Uh, Missionaries like Luke and Patty Talbert who are with us and uh, others that uh, we will hopefully hear from uh, over the course of the next few weeks. But uh, I just would encourage you to pray about how it is that you may support missions by giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. One thing for you to pray about that we do every year in our family is that uh, the largest Christmas gift that we give every year is the, is the, the check that we write to Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So I would encourage you to prayerfully consider making uh, a similar commitment in your own life. Okay. Having said those things, uh, one other announcement. Uh, hopefully you've made the 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We do have live group fellowships uh, this weekend, so um, there's, there's nothing going on on campus this evening. Hopefully uh, some of you have gotten plugged into a life group. If you don't have a life group and you're kind of curious about where you might get plugged in or something like that, Kevin's not here. He usually handles that. But if you'll grab me afterward, I'd love to talk with you about how you might find a life group that you can get plugged into. Okay? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom from your word. Father, wisdom from on high, that, Father God, we would be content to know nothing save for Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so long as that message, Lord God, would bring about your glory and the salvation of men, women, boys, and girls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is the hope of the church? You know, as, as a pastor, um, uh, family gatherings are fun. I, I often get asked to pray at family gatherings. I know that doesn't surprise you. Um, and uh, so I, I didn't this time. I didn't this Thanksgiving. But often I get asked to say the prayer. And what I, what I always love is everybody wants me to pray. Nobody usually over family meals want me to weigh in on you know, theological conversations. Nobody over a family meal wants to be engaging in their, their uh, unorthodox, uh, weird conversations uh, and, and have me speak into the thought processes that have gone into that because they're all like, well, we, we don't really want to go there. I'm like, well, you, you want me to pray, but you don't actually want me to know anything. Sometimes as preachers, 
as pastors, as proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be content as know-nothing kind of preachers. We need to be content as being perceived of as sort of one-trick ponies, as, as people with one overarching message. We need to be relatively okay with not knowing everything. Here we find ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, as you know, uh, we are working our way through the Bible. We've made it to Paul's letters here in Corinthians. Uh, we started in Genesis all the way back in January. We've made it this far. Uh, we will eventually get into Revelation. And the very last Sunday of the year, Pastor Kevin is going to preach. And he's going to try and tie everything together with one sermon that sort of takes us from Genesis to Revelation and shows us how Genesis and Revelation are bookends that hold together God's promise and purpose of redemption in the world. But we made it to Corinthians. And Corinthians is a letter written to a church that's an absolute mess. All right, Corinthians is, or First and Second Corinthians both, we, we, we know for sure that there were multiple letters to Corinth that were written. We know, for instance, that we, we, we're missing some because Paul uses language like the letters that I wrote to you before. We know at least three letters written to the Corinthians. We only have two of them that have been preserved. But the, the church at Corinth was a mess. It was an unhealthy church. People were arguing, people were fighting, people were having affairs, people were doing all the kind of terrible things within a church that we would never want to see happen. And in the midst of that, Paul writes them a letter, and Paul writes them a relatively strongly worded letter, and, and, and Paul's letter is, hey, listen, I, I want to remind you when he gets to chapter 2 that when I got there, I wasn't really trying to impress anybody. As a matter of fact, some people probably th think I don't know anything, and I'm relatively okay with that. I am sort of a know-nothing kind of preacher. This morning, I want to wrestle with the question, what is the hope of the church? And can I tell you that the hope of the church is wound up in know-nothing kind of preachers? In a pastor that doesn't know a whole lot as long as he knows one thing that matters above all else. What is the hope of the church? The first thing we'll see in this passage of Scripture is the hope of the church is seen in the plain preaching of God's Word. The plain preaching of God's Word. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. How important is preaching in a healthy church? Contrary to popular belief, study after study tells us that the thing that draw people into a church is not children's ministry or music or programming. The thing above all else that draws people into churches is the proper, correct, and appropriate preaching of God's Word. It, it, that is the most important thing. Now, if you're sitting there going, well, ain't the most important thing to me. Well, good news, because you found a really bad one. But, it's a joke. Please laugh when I say I'm a bad preacher. That'd be great. Thanks. But for most people, that matters more than anything else. Not only does the preaching affect people's decision to attend church, the preaching sets the tone for the health of a church. This is part of why in many of our life groups we do sermon-driven discipleship. Because we believe that the sermon experience, the sermon act, is not complete until hearers, listeners of that word, have actually sought to apply the preached word to their lives. And so in many of our life groups that practice sermon-driven discipleship, what they're doing is they're taking the sermon that I preach on a Sunday morning, and then they're working to make application of that through the course of the following week and then on the following Sunday morning. How do we leverage that into our lives? Paul did not come proclaiming God's Word with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't come wowing them with big words. Now let's be careful. Paul does not say anywhere that he's anti-intellectual, but he opposes intellectual vanity. Have you ever known people that just loved big words and they seem to use them all the time? 
Last Sunday night, we, we had a, a sort of a Q&A, and I used a bunch of words, and I didn't think anything about the words that I used, and afterward, one of our teenagers came to me and said, I needed a dictionary for everything that you said. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're not smart enough to keep up with my teaching. No, I didn't say that, right? What does that mean? That means I didn't do a good job of clearly communicating if the words that I used were too big. Right? The words were inappropriate. So we got to be careful. Paul's not anti-intellectual here, but he's sort of opposed to this intellectual vanity. He said, I didn't show up so that y'all could look up at me having preached the word and go, look how smart Paul is. He says, I came to you preaching the very plain, simple word of God. He didn't come to them as a know-it-all or composed speeches Fishing for admiration. On the contrary, as one commentator put it, he was content to be identified as a know-nothing who preached foolishness. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The hope of the church is found in the plain preaching of God's word. Paul didn't show up to impress. He came to Corinth to lead people to Christ. Jesus takes center stage in all of Paul's ministry. And as a result, like John the Baptist, Paul understands that as Christ must increase and he, Paul, must decrease. I like the way that Albert Moeller describes preaching. I'm going to read a long quote to you. I don't do this often, but I think it's really good. In the final analysis, the ultimate authority for preaching is the authority of the Bible as the Word of God. Without this authority, the preacher stands naked and silent before the congregation and the watching world. If the Bible is not the Word of God, the preacher is involved in an act of self-delusion or professional pretension. Standing on the authority of Scripture, the preacher declares a truth received, not a message invented. The teaching office is not an advisory role based in religious expertise, but a prophetic function whereby God speaks to his people. In other words, the purpose of the preacher is simple. Speak God's word to God's people. Folks, I have plenty to say to you as long as my message is wedded, tied, connected, welded even to the word of God. But when it's just Craig's opinion, then that's just as good as anybody else's. Or just as bad, depending on exactly how the case may be. Healthy churches, the hope of the church is rooted in the plain preaching of God's Word. If the Bible is the ultimate authority in preaching, the good preaching that builds a healthy church is nothing more than plain, simple preaching. You, you get in the picture right here. I keep repeating it over and over again. Hopefully you'll figure it out. It's just plain and simple. Like the greatest, the greatest compliment that I'll receive as a pastor, and I get it every once in a while, is when somebody, somebody reads and, and they, they, they hear a sermon, and they go, well, I, I, I could have preached that sermon. That means that we're, we're learning what it is to rightly divide and understand Scripture, right? That, that as you sit under the preaching of the Word of God, that you are slowly over time growing in a plain, simple understanding that you're actually able to rightly divide the Word for yourself. That's the goal here. But what is a good sermon? I like this. The best sermon for any time is the time's best utterance. Sometimes we get into a mess when our preaching, when we're trying to preach a message for a different congregation. For the congregation that we might covet or wish, or we're trying to preach a message for a different time. Do you understand? 
that when we are preaching God's word, we should be preaching God's word, as, as one said at one time, with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, so that we see, as John Stott called it, the, the bridging of two worlds in the preaching act, so that the ancient world is brought to bear in the present world, and we're able to take the ancient, powerful word of God and make application of that in the very present moments of our lives. Very plain and simple. Folks, do you also understand that the humility of leaders is reflected in a pastor's willingness to lead the church as God, that God has given to them rather than the church they covenant? Humility is shown in the kind of leadership and the kind of preaching. Humility is shown when a pastor stands up and says, I'm going to preach, as Paul said, the foolishness of Christ. And though the world may deride that, that message, though it may not come across as, as exciting or flashy, I'm going to proclaim nothing else because it's what God has given me to preach. It's not about me. Preaching should be as complicated or as simple as the congregation to whom that sermon is being delivered. Right? So, for instance, if, if, if a church is, is made up primarily of seminary students, then, then probably we need to quote some Greek and things like that in it. If, if lots of seminary professors and things like that. If a church is, is in, in the research triangle in Raleigh-Durham, there might be a different way because language and, and words is... But, but what if we're preaching to a church that's in a, a mining village in the middle of nowhere? Then the language that we're going to use is going to fit the people around us. These sermon illustrations that we use are going to fit those people. It's always important that the message is plain and simple, that it's contextual. Preaching has to be simple, right? The plain preaching of God's Word. So that's the first thing we see in the hope of the church. Now, now keep in mind, I want you to know, these are not necessarily in order of importance. So when you see the gospel listed as number two, you go, Craig, shouldn't the gospel be number one? Okay, these aren't listed as importance. We might should have just put these with bullet points instead. So the first thing that the church needs is the simple preaching of God's word. The second thing that is the hope of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The preaching of God's word is good, but there is no better message to preach from God's word than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, every sermon that's ever delivered should contain enough gospel for anybody who's walked into the doors of the church to understand their sin and their need for a Savior in the way that they might be saved. The hope of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the gospel that builds the church, it is the gospel that sustains the church. But it's not only the hope of the church, it's the hope of the entire world. Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what is the gospel? Hopefully if you've been here long enough, you understand this. But just in case, listen, the gospel is very simply this. Christ, virgin born, lived a sinless life, died on a cruel, rugged cross, was buried, dead, in the grave, rose three days later, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is the gospel. It is an historical event. Paul says, I came claiming to know nothing else. I mentioned this last Sunday, but I mentioned to you again. Paul says this is foolishness. Understand, we're proclaiming a foolish message. And Paul says, I'm okay with that. I came claiming to know nothing among you except that Jesus died and rose again. And people laughed at that message. It's the wisdom of God. It's the foolishness of man. It's the hope of all mankind. 
The hope of the church doesn't rest ultimately on great sound systems, though I am thankful for ours. The hope of the church doesn't rest on slick video presentations. The hope of the church doesn't even rest on whether or not the pastor and the worship leader can figure out exactly what the order of worship is. The hope of the church is built on Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul said, I came preaching a simple message. And that simple message was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus promised in Matthew 6, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How is the church of Jesus Christ built up? Jesus tells us that the church is to be built up through the the working out, the living out, the obedience to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is what? That we should make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But how is it that disciples are to be made? Disciples are to be made through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to build his church through the proclamation of his gospel message. What does gospel mean? Remember, good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's what the angels said as they revealed themselves to the shepherds. Good news, gospel. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. Or excuse me, this is what Paul came proclaiming. This is what Jesus is. He is good news. When I talk about the hope of a church, the hope of individual churches, the hope of the universal church, of the global church, I sometimes get a little bit frustrated or shake my head because, folks, it's not complicated. It doesn't have to be that hard. The hope of the church is the plain, simple preaching of the Word of God. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, if we will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus will change people. Jesus will change hearts and souls and minds. Folks, the gospel of Jesus can reform churches. The gospel of Jesus can even reform entire societies. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of the church is found in the plain preaching of the word. It's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, this morning, the hope of the church is found in the humility of leadership. Paul said, I decided to know nothing, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We we, it's, it's fun to read all the different views on why Paul was trembling. Right? I, I came across one commentary this week that had eight possible reasons for why Paul was trembling. And, 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 and I can appreciate that in my nerdy self, but I also know that when I stand up before you this morning, if I give you eight reasons for why Paul might have been trembling, there's going to be seven reasons why y'all are asleep. Um, but here's what we know is that Paul showed up in, in a show of weakness. Now, Paul doesn't say, I am weak. He says, in fact, he says, I became weak. To, the, to those who are weak, I become weak. Paul didn't show up to impress. He came to Corinth to lead people to Christ. And Jesus takes center stage in Paul's ministry. When I cling to preaching the word as it is written, then I remove opportunities to show off my own intelligence or rhetorical ability. You understand that? 
When I take this word and I lay it out and I go, how am I going to preach a sermon today? And instead of bringing Craig's ideas and superimposing them upon the word of God and trying to develop a sermon that would fit what I want to say, when I allow the word of God to actually shape and form and force itself upon a sermon, then no longer are these the witty wisdoms of Craig Thompson. Instead, this is the unchanging word of God. And Paul says, I came to you in weakness. The hope of the church is found not in prideful leadership, but in humble leadership. If we look at Paul's expectation, God's expectation for what pastors, leaders, elders, shepherds, whatever word you want to use, are in Timothy and in Titus, you know what you're going to find is you're not going to find a list of the things that they're supposed to be able to do except for teach. You're going to find a list of the things that they are to be, their character qualities. And many of those character qualities suggest a man who is humble and contrite of heart. As David said in Psalm 51, that is what the Lord desires. And that's what, not only what he desires of us individually, it's certainly what he desires of us as leaders within the local church. Folks, the message of the gospel is not macho. It is not testosterone-filled. It is weak. And those who respond to the gospel do so in weakness. But Paul was not ashamed to be weak on their behalf and in the service of Christ. The hope of the church is not in the power of a preacher, but in the power of her members. The hope of the church is in the power of Christ and his gospel through the, through the Holy Spirit. But that power is only activated when we as the church and specifically as leaders in the church realize, accept, own, and live into our own weakness. Weakness, humility, those words become interchangeable in Paul's language. Humility, I like this definition. I think this came from C.S. Lewis. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. See, real humility is not that I'm constantly putting myself down. Real humility just comes down to the fact that my own desires, my own needs, my own preferences, they tend to fall somewhere third, fourth, fifth in line in my thinking. This is what moms are like, isn't it? This is why good moms are often such a wonderful picture of what humility looks like. Because good moms are so often putting their own needs somewhere fourth or fifth down the line of all the other things that need to be done. This is why good moms need really good husbands to come alongside them and to make sure they get taken care of. Because good moms are always serving, serving, serving. They need somebody else to come alongside and love them well. Humility is not putting myself down. Humility is just putting myself in the background, putting others ahead of myself. Paul says he was humble and weak. Thursday night, I wrestled with my nephews. So we, we had Thanksgiving, and my brothers came over, and I have one little nephew. I think he's three. I, I lose count. Is he three? I'm looking for one of my kids. I got, it. I got the age right. Good. That's good. I messed that up really bad. So me and my three-year-old are, are wrestling, or my three-year-old nephew. I do not have a three-year-old, and I don't want yours. Um... All of my nephews have one rule. They're welcome to spend the night at my house anytime they want as soon as they're potty trained. That's the only rule. Aunt Angela's so much nicer. No, baby, it's okay. Uncle Craig, don't you come to my house unless you're potty trained, not unless you bring a parent. All right, anyway, so I'm in the floor wrestling with my three-year-old nephew, and he's just giving me the business. And down in the floor we are, and, 
and I'm picking him up and then he, putting him down. He's running, he's tackling me, and I'm sitting in the floor. He'd tackle me, and I'd fly back, and I'd pick him up, and I'd set him back down, and he'd run and tackle me. And, and then I took him, and I flipped him over, and I tickled him, and I, and I played with him. You know what I had to do in that moment? I, I had to be weak on his behalf. I had to be weak because had I been strong, I might have hurt him. I didn't, I didn't suddenly become weak when my three-year-old beat me up. And y'all, can I tell you, like I was laying on the ground and he was just kind of using me as a jungle gym. I'm glad he only weighs like 27 pounds or something, however much a three-year-old weighs, because he decided that what he would do is get on my back and jump and land with his knees right in my kidneys. It was amazing, let me tell you. Fortunately, he didn't weigh much. So anyway, but, but had I been, now, now things then went south because I'm in there just playing with the three-year-old nephew. All the other boys are outside playing football with big, big cousin leading the charge. Well, I don't know what went wrong outside, but they began to trickle in. All, they didn't trickle. They all flooded in at one time. There's five of them. And all they see is me in the floor with Bennett. And all of a sudden, I couldn't be quite as weak as I had been because they all jumped on me. You understand, as, as I'm wrestling with my three-year-old, four-year-old, and five-year-old nephews, it's a whole different ballgame. If I'm trying to wrestle with half-grown Wyatt, it's completely different. If I'm wrestling with one of you grown people, i have I, I, I got to do it differently. We don't become, we, we, we don't, aren't weak, but we become weak for the sake of others. So, so to some degree, we need to understand that when we submit, we do so willingly. But some of you that are pretty astute recognizes that that illustration kind of fails. Because it fails to keep in mind that strength is always relative. I'm a pretty strong guy until I encounter somebody who is a lot stronger than me. So somebody will say, Pastor Craig, are you strong? I say, well, what does that mean? How do you define that word? Like, what do you define strong as? Does strong mean you can pick up this much weight? Well, can you bench press your body weight? Yes, great, then I'm strong. Can you squat 800 pounds? No, then I'm weak. You understand strength is relative. Paul says I was weak. But do you understand we don't just become weak when we compare ourselves with the overwhelming greatness, majesty, might, and strength of Christ. We are forced to humble ourselves under the holiness of God. Paul says, I became weak. Maybe in proportion to the Corinthians, he was intellectually strong, but he also recognizes not only does he weaken himself so as to minister to them, he also recognizes that standing under the holiness of God in the act of proclaiming the gospel, he is weak. Folks, the hope of the church is not wound up in proud leadership, but in humble leadership who's willing to be weak for the sake of, God, of the gospel and of God's people. 
So what is the hope of the church? The plain preaching of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the humility of leaders, and then finally this morning, the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, a church can have good speeches, mechanically correct sermons, great leaders, awesome ministry programming, amazing music, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, it is all a waste. As good Baptists, we often don't do a really good job of emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individuals, in the lives of the church, and certainly in the world around us. In preaching, we often refer to the unction of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The unction of the Holy Spirit is difficult to complain or to explain, but he who preaches with its presence and who hears that kind of preaching soon detects. The unction, the power, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been in a worship service where the sermon just seemed to be so powerful, so impregnated with the power of God's Holy Spirit that it left an indelible mark, that lives were changed? I can tell you that as preachers, we pray for those opportunities. And the Lord doesn't give them to us all the time, but what a blessing it is when we preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is necessary for the application of the sermon. The Holy Spirit is necessary to apply the gospel to unsaved hearers. That's why we often pray for the Holy Spirit to convict sinners and draw them toward Christ. We pray for the Holy Spirit to go ahead of us. How often do I find myself pouring in prayer over a sermon, an upcoming sermon, praying that the Lord would use that message, that the Holy Spirit would prepare the hearts of y'all before you show up, so that the sermon would find a prepared seedbed upon which it might fall, and that the sermon would blossom and grow and that lives would be changed. The book of Acts is filled not only with the acts of the apostles, but with the acts of the Holy Spirit as well. The church needs more than men and women can offer. The church is more than a social club. The church needs the filling of the Holy Spirit. The church needs the fire that the Holy Spirit brings. The church needs the movement of the Holy Spirit among chairs and pews, but also among neighborhoods and subdivisions and communities. We need the Holy Spirit to fill this church body, but we also need it to bleed out into the surrounding communities, and to impact our city and our county with the hope of Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to move among these communities to convict people of sin and empower them to serve Christ. Listen, I, I recognize that in some ways this is sort of a, can we call it a boring sermon? It probably is for some of you. As, as we think about what the hope of the church is, you're, you're, you're not going to leave here with six step, steps on how to make your life better immediately. But I believe that what God is doing right here at Malvern Hill is building up a church for himself. And I believe that the hope that we have for God to do something powerful here is rooted in a proper understanding of what a church is and how a church should behave how a church should act and what the character of a church should be 
Today's also the first Sunday of Advent. It's the beginning of the Christmas season. And here on this very first Sunday of Advent, I'm reminded of a quote from Dr. Seuss. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? The Grinch did not understand Christmas. He only saw the gifts and the decorations. He never understood the Christ of Christmas. But sometimes, when we consider the hope and the health of a church, we resemble the Grinch just a little bit ourselves. We get so caught up in the ribbons, tags, packages, boxes, and bags of the church that we miss the simple truths. The hope of the church is in the plain preaching of God's Word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, humble and healthy leaders, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not and does not have to be complicated. But the hope of your life is basically the same. You see, the difficult thing about preaching a message about what the church should be is it's very hard for you to leave here and make personal application to it. So on the way out this morning, I will remind you of this. A healthy church, a hopeful church, is built up of healthy members. And just as the church is built up in the plain preaching of God's word, the gospel of Jesus, humble and healthy leaders in the power of the Holy Spirit, the hope of your life is basically the same. The hope of your life is in the word of God. You say, but Craig, I don't preach. Ah, but you do. You see, we all preach to ourselves every single day. Do you preach God's plain truth to your own heart regularly? Or do you try to find ways to skirt the truths, especially the hard truths of God's Word? Are you willing to allow the plain truths of God's Word to speak directly into your heart and your soul? Or are you trying to explain away the hard parts? The hope of your life is built upon you rightly preaching the word to yourself. The hope of your life is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel may be building up its church, but folks, the gospel is necessary for the unbuilding, unpacking, dismantling of your sin and the upbuilding of a righteous life rooted in Christ. Folks, can I tell you that individually, if you have heard the gospel but it has not changed you, you need to ask yourself the question of whether or not you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of your life needs is built upon the drawing of the Holy Spirit, the willingness for you to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work, to intervene, to change you. The hope of your life is built on a humble heart Willing to accept Jesus Christ 
as your Lord and Savior. Paul came to the Corinthians willing to be weak and humble, knowing nothing save for Christ and Him crucified. Paul was willing to be seen as weak so that they might be strengthened in Christ. Please listen to me this morning. You cannot have Jesus and your pride too. The heart that God desires, the heart that God accepts, is a broken and contrite heart. You see, the spirit of the age and the spirit of Christ are in conflict with one another. And the spirit of the age is power and greed and strength. And the spirit of Christ is weakness, humility, and hope in something other than my own ability. The spirit of the age says, look what I did. The spirit of Christ says, look what Christ did. The spirit of the age says, I don't need any help. The spirit of Christ says, I bring nothing but filthy rags. And Jesus is all I need. This morning, the invitation is simple. Perhaps some of you would like to come and pray for the health of our church. Perhaps some of you hear these words and pray that God would continue to strengthen and enable our church to fulfill the Great Commission, to love one another well, to bring honor and glory to Him. I'd invite you to come and to pray, or to pray there at your seat. But there may be some of you, as a matter of fact, I'm confident there are some of you this morning who need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There's some of you that honestly are wrestling right now with whether or not you're willing to let go of your own pride and allow Jesus to take control of your life. Folks, you can't have it both ways. You can have your pride or you can have Jesus. But you can't have both. Will you accept Christ today? The foolishness of the world but the wisdom of God and the hope for salvation to all who believes. Broken and sinful though you may be, Christ will receive you today. Will you come and be saved? Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, Lord, as we consider the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. Lord, as we consider the heartbeat really of the entire New Testament, the hope for mankind, the hope for men, women, boys, and girls that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Lord God, would you draw prideful people to yourself today? Lord God, would you use your Holy Spirit? Would you send your Holy Spirit to convict of sin? to break down those walls of pride and to bring salvation. Would you move among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with us this morning as we sing. And would you come today and receive Christ?